Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing the Chinese Communist Party's recent 19th Party Congress, how it unfolded, its significance for the power of Chinese President Xi Jinping, and what we can expect of Chinese policy moving forward. To help us explore the Party Congress and its significance for future Chinese policy, we're talking with Mr. Peter Mattis, who's a fellow in the China program at the Jamestown Foundation, specializing in Chinese language, history, and security policy. Mr. Mattis, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you very much for having me on, Bonnie. The 19th Party Congress created a new Politburo Standing Committee, retaining Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang as members, and adding five new PBSC members. But none of those five will be young enough to be considered a successor to Xi Jinping in 2022, when his second term ends. So on the issue of not naming a uh, successor, um, I guess there are some differences of, of views among observers as to whether Xi Jinping will eventually uh, name a successor, whether he will try to stay on a third term. Uh, so can you explain from your point of view, why didn't he name a successor now? And do you think he will eventually do so? Or do you think that he is angling uh, to remain on as party secretary for more than two terms? If he's angling at, at staying on as party secretary, I wonder if it's appropriate to refer to them as terms. Um, if he's planning on staying on, he probably plans on staying on until he's pushed out or he retires of his own volition. Given that he broke the norm of going after retired Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee officials, it would seem odd that he might retire um, after he's caused so much turmoil in the, in the leadership ranks. I've been puzzling over this question for a while, and I don't think it's clear either way, except to say that institutionally, if there were rules that were going to govern things, he hasn't left it. He hasn't left it clear, and it's not obvious who could take it up. Those people who have been named successors in the past do not have a particularly good history. People like Liu Shaoqi or Lin Biao, Hu Yaobang, Zhao Ziyang, don't seem to have a um, a long shelf life after they've been named, or it becomes clear that they have an opportunity to succeed the leadership. So I think at this point. I'd be, I'd call it 60-40 in favor of him staying on. And even if he doesn't stay on officially as the general secretary, I'm not sure that I would think, I don't think his influence will wane after the next party Congress. So what are the other ways that he could exert influence? You think he might remain head of the Central Military Commission or some other position, or maybe go back to the Deng Xiaoping model of being chairman of the bridge club? Well, I don't think Xi Jinping plays bridge, but... Um, <laughs> I would think that he probably would stay on as the Central Military Commission chairman. That said, you know, if you have real power in that system, it doesn't matter whether you have a position or not. You know, Deng Xiaoping was able to exert influence because he knew everyone, and the people who controlled the security arms were not going to listen to anyone else if Deng Xiaoping didn't agree to it. I'm not sure that Xi Jinping has quite that that authority over the military. I would say he can... If he has if he has real power and real influence, at best he'll at most he'll stay on as the Central Military Commission chair, or he might even retire all the way into the shadows and just ensure that 
that his acolytes are in in the relevant positions to command the gun, to command the pen, um, and ensure the party bureaucracy follows in, on the path that he's laid out. Well, since you've just raised uh, the military, how would you describe Xi Jinping's relationship with the military? Is it um, much stronger control over the military than Hu Jintao? If so, in what ways? And, and, and are there still issues in military-civilian um, interaction that are problematic? Well, that's a, that's a big question with a lot of different directions to go. Um, very quickly on, on a civil-military divide, I think it's, it's basically a truism at this point that in the past... China's elite had political and military positions. People like Hu Yaobang, Deng Xiaoping, um, Chen Yun, um, Huo Guofeng, all had served in, in military positions at one point or another, or other, other security positions. And so they had a direct sort of working knowledge of the military and the personalities that were in it. And there's a lot of interaction at lower levels between the PLA and party cadre, but they're but they're different. They're not people who are overlapping or, or necessarily have shared experiences in the way they've come up through through either the general party system or the PLA. So there's probably some sort of division there that's that's a natural feature of, of how the, the party has changed in the last in the last ninety years. You know, just the way that there are divides in a lot of Western countries between civil and military elites. So some at some level there's going to be friction just because it's they may not always understand each other or the worlds in which they which they live. I'm not sure how we to tr- to turn to that question of control. I'm not sure how we how we really say whether Hu Jintao had lots of control or Jiang Zemin had lots of control or or how does this fare versus versus Deng Xiaoping and and the kinds of with the kinds of elite that were around him having served in the revolution as well. What I think Xi Jinping has done that is that is important is that. With the military reform that was announced in November 2015, they created a squeeze on roughly two grades within the within the upper ranks of the leadership, where people, if you were to sort of promote them in, into their normal progression, they'd conceivably only serve maybe a year or 18 months before they were forced into retirement, um, because there aren't as ma- there aren't as many positions at the Central Military Commission. There aren't as military, military, military region grade positions, and so he's essentially squeezed out a cohort or maybe two of the PLA leadership. So there are fewer positions with a broader pool, and there's always, you know, there's always politics in any organization about who gets to fit into what kind of position, especially once you get to the top. But now you have a broader pool of officers, a smaller number of positions. And Xi Jinping, who is very clearly the one making personnel decisions, so I th- he may not have he may not have control now, but I would think in his ability to dispense with those positions and provide people you know the next promotions, he's in a pretty good position to to select people and and earn their loyalty through patronage. On another point that I think is important for not just Xi Jinping's control over the military, but, but really his control over the party, is that they've announced an intention to 
to run a law through the National People's Congress that will move, remove the dual authority over the people's armed police. You know, the paramilitary forces that that do riot control, crack down on uprisings, um, are quite active in, in Tibet and Xinjiang, and take them from their from their dual control under the state council and the Ministry of Public Security and hand it entirely over to the Central Military Commission. And this is two things. First, it places a kind of a monopoly of violence in, in Xi Jinping's hands. You know, he has both the PLA and the People's Armed Police. Second, it removes the authority of county and provincial party secretaries to order around People's Armed Police units to address the concerns locally. And the grassroots cadre are the area of the party where Xi Jinping's authority is least. You know, no matter what kind of control he has over the PLA, over the central party bureaucracy, it's very hard to exert control over the over the several thousand um, county secretaries and the other provincial secretaries who are not in Beijing on the Politburo. So he's, in one sense, he's risked local authority and stability to make that to put that authority in his own hands. So let's start talking uh, about the question of norms and rules. Did Xi Jinping abide by norms and rules? Did he break some of the norms and rules? What's your assessment of what transpired at the 19th Party Congress? Well, in sum, I would say that Xi Jinping has sacrificed the institutionalization of party politics for the centralization under his personality. Now, we can say there are a few things that he kept in place, you know, Basically, the age norm held, although it gets a little bit tricky depending on how you want to look at um, Li Yuanchao and whether or not he needed to go down or go up and retire, depending on his age. He kept the norm of basically seniority in the ranking of the Politburo Standing Committee members, um, and on a somewhat lesser norm, he continued the effort of keeping women out of the Politburo Standing Committee. The senior most woman, Sun Chunlan, made the Politburo, but she'll be 72 years old at the next party congress and probably ineligible for the standing committee. The most significant violations, I think, are, are personnel moves that were made right before the congress, like the ouster of Chongqing party secretary, Sun Zhengtai, who, alongside someone like Hu Chunhua, would have been there to carry on another, you know, a younger generation of leadership that could have taken the could have taken control at the, at the next party congress. He also essentially overturned the Central Military Commission staff with a reorganization, um, shrunk it, and put people in place before the party congress. And it's not uncommon for there to be a little bit of a, sh a shift beforehand or just before, but this was a bit broader than in the past. The other piece that he broke, which is probably the most important one, is that he threw out the informal straw polls for leadership positions and interviewed the candidates himself. So in a sense, gone is intraparty democracy. The second thing that's also strange is that he, in one sense, reversed the three represents of Jiang Zemin, which allowed business people into the party. And there are no there are no business people in the Central Committee, unlike the last time around in the, or Party Congress in 2007. So at this point, it's not really obvious who's going to be in charge after him. 
the composition of the central committee is a bit different with the absence of business people. And we can safely say that the previous institutionalization under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao that seemed to kind of stabilize and regularize leadership succession is probably over. I wanted to talk a little bit about the actual work report, which, um, of course, took Xi Jinping about three and a half hours to deliver. Uh, But it was written by uh, a group. Uh, Of course, we don't know how much, uh, how many people were involved or how much of the actual writing Xi Jinping did, but I think it's probably safe to assume that uh, the final uh, draft was reviewed uh, by Xi Jinping, and he may have indeed had uh, quite a bit of uh, opportunity to put his own uh, imprint on the document. So I wonder, what are your, what are your just sort of key takeaways. Um, Obviously, it's very, very long, but what do you think are the most important messages that come out of that work report? Hu Jintao's speech in 2007 lasted about two hours. His speech in 2012 lasted about 90 minutes. So perhaps one of the key messages to take away from the work report and its delivery is that you must sit here and listen. I'm the one speaking, and you guys, the rest of the party, are going to have to sit there and listen to me describe where things stand and what we've accomplished. I know that sounds a little bit flippant, but elements of the speech, like how the party has reinforced intra-party democracy and rule of law, are plainly false, um, just given what's happened in the last five years. Everything from sort of disappearances to extrajudicial kidnappings abroad to running a straw poll or getting rid of the straw polls and doing the interviewing yourself for candidates for the Politburo and the Standing Committee. So I think, I think an element of it is simply exerting his authority over the party and saying, I'm the, one, I'm the one taking center stage. One thing that I thought was interesting is that the reform section, in contrast, in the, in the opening part of the speech, was not very specific. This is ostensibly the, the part talking about economic changes and how they're moving into a, into a better place. But when you, it really just says, oh, we've done, we've done some important things in 1,500 different areas. Um, things, are, things are great. But when you look at every other section in, in the opening introduction, you see specific examples. On science and technology, you have the successful launch of the Tiangong-2 space lab, the commissioning of a deep-sea submersible. You have the launch of, of a quantum science satellite. You have the test flight of the C919 airliner. There are, all of, there are all of these places where he's, that's very, very specific, even in the section on party reform, on democracy and rule of law, on, on progress on the theoretical and cultural fronts. There are a number of very specific points. But when it comes to economic change and shifts, it just says we've done all right. Um, and to me, that suggests that they haven't done all right. And on a major set of issues, Xi Jinping has not actually been able to push it very far. The second point that I would make about the content of the work report is that a lot of these are evolutions, sort of minor evolutions of party thinking rather than any significant change. So the differences that we see between someone like Xi Jinping, Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin before them, Deng Xiaoping before them, is that we're not necessarily seeing a big policy debate about the objectives or sort of the general path in getting there. And 
you know, I think this keeps with the sort of Marxist-Leninist scientific view of how to create policy or follow historical laws to develop it. The second, the second sort of point off of that is that if you're talking about issues of leadership struggle, this is not about policy. This is really just about power and who gets to decide and who gets to take credit and who gets to take blame. There was one element of the work report that struck me, and, and that was that Xi Jinping said that China's path of development has proven successful. I don't think he actually used the word model, but I think that's essentially what he implied. And he said that this can now be considered an option um, by other developing countries. Now, in the past, the Chinese, I think, have very deliberately refrained from promoting um, their own socialist system with Chinese characteristics as a model of development for the third world. So why do you think that Xi Jinping decided to do this now? Is this for a domestic audience to tell them that China has really succeeded um, at home? Or is it really intended to uh, compete with the United States and the West uh, abroad? Um, or is there something else? I've had three thoughts on that, on that kind of question. I think the first is simply that Chinese power has increased while the United States has appeared vulnerable in its international position, after, particularly after the financial crisis and the election of President Trump. Um, second, I think the piece that we tend to forget about China's concerns is that it's not necessarily about competing with the United States or or necessarily related to another power, but it's simply about legitimizing its system itself, both at home and abroad. And when you look at the content of, say, the, the United Nations Charter um, and the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and a number of other sort of seminal international treaty documents that are out there, China's authoritarian system, to be legitimate, at least from from an international perspective, requires rewriting those rules, that it's just as okay to be a, a Leninist state as it is a democracy, that the way in which the party goes about governing is just as good as, as anything done in a, in a democracy. So the more countries that share the party's political values, the more likely Beijing will, ha will be to have this kind of legitimacy, to undercut human rights discourse, to carve out a sort of an unassailable international position. You know, when you when you talk to people around DC and in sort of informal settings and say, well, is there any is there any place time where we would consider you know a one party Leninist state to be a legitimate government? And most people, or most Americans I should say, that I've spoken with tend to say, well, you know, in my heart of hearts, not really. I don't think I would ever consider that a legitimate government. And we often forget that the CCP's obsession with state security has as much to do with these kinds of ideas as it does with any sort of threat from, a, from an opposition or, or terrorism or any other sort of physical force against the government. The third point, I think, is that China has described a window of strategic opportunity to push its development and economic growth before it feels like trends in their, in their economy, their demographics, their environmental concerns will sort of 
cinch down and, and prevent China's ex economic expansion. And so they're racing, they're racing against time. And given the, those first two points, I think when you, if you were Chinese policymakers or if you're Xi Jinping, that there's a sense that you've got to press advantages while the advantages are there to be had. And that there will come a time when those are no longer, no longer in your favor or no longer, you're no longer able to push as hard. But here is an opportunity where, where we can say the United States has not necessarily picked up the mantle of leadership that it's once had and that there's a space for a different kind of conversation. And China wants to step into that. Many people who analyze uh, Chinese politics, certainly over the past decades, um, have focused on factions uh, to assess the relative power of uh, an individual leader. And uh, there are people who have looked at the changes in the Standing Committee and the Politburo um, and even the Central Committee in terms of which factions came out on top and, and which ones uh, did not fare well. So I'm curious, in your view, uh, do factions still matter in our understanding of Chinese politics? And if so, how? Well, the short answer is yes, that factions do matter. I think part of the problem is that when we've talked about factions, we've we've talked about them as being some sort of kind of grand alignment, um, almost like a political party. And you know, creating a faction inside the CCP is something that can get you purged. Um, so I think when we, we look at these, we should really be thinking of something that's a little bit smaller, that's not necessarily about the person who's in charge, but about people trying to resist that authority or to reduce their power or to, to, to curb their influence. Um, you know, this kind of group has to be small enough to avoid discovery, but large enough to have, to have um, some kind of influence or some kind of blocking power. And they may be picking a policy area on which to, to counter the, the central leadership or the party general secretary, but it's strictly, it's not about the policy itself but rather about the leader, the leader's individual power. Um, and in this case, with Xi Jinping, I don't think that there are signs of, of anyone coming together as a, a sort of an organized faction to oppose him. Um, he's been relatively effective so far, I think, at, at having a very broad policy agenda so it's very difficult to pick a place where you can say, this is important to Xi Jinping. We, if we oppose him here, then we might have some success. I think his agenda has been broad enough across a number of different areas and that he's been active across all of those different areas that if you picked a place to fight him um, or to oppose him, it's quite possible that he would dodge around you and come back, come back from behind after you've exposed yourself. Factions are relevant if we think about it as kind of a small battle group that's, that's arranged in opposition. They don't necessarily make sense if we talk about them as being the China Youth League or the Princelings or the Shanghai faction. Um, those, I don't think, do justice to either the party history or to, 
to thinking about how groups might form and how they would have how they would have to hide and then and then come out and pick up a political battle. So that brings me to really a question about the extent of uh, Xi Jinping's power. You know, we have seen so many headlines after the 19th Party Congress that have portrayed Xi Jinping as as powerful as Mao Zedong, some have said. Um, And uh, very few people, I think, really talk about what some of the constraints might be on Xi Jinping's power. So do you see him as all-powerful? Does he have constraints on his power? And if so, what are those? I think we have to be honest about what does it mean that he what does it mean that he's powerful you know he's he's done a decent job of kneecapping some of his political opponents of of making space for example at the top rungs of the PLA so that he can make the, he can make the selection of who goes in there he's reshuffled all of the party secretaries and provincial governors in the last 18 months or so but he didn't get to put all of his own people there Maybe he just simply didn't have enough people that he could put in them into those positions. But he hasn't really been all that successful at creating things. You know, to go back to the to what I mentioned about the about the work report, the reform section is awfully vague compared to all of the other ones that, that have specific measures and accomplishments. Um, he has he's had trouble making the bureaucracy work. Um to do what he thinks it should do. And I think this, the sign of this is that he's centralized all of these authorities within a dozen or so leading small groups and central commission. And this doesn't really give Xi Jinping a creative power, but it ensures that he has a veto over, over everything that's taking place. So, I think the, the, the point about his, about his power is that a lot of it has been negative. It's coercive. It's a veto power. It's the ability to block, block the party, party machinery from, from taking care of things or from generating ideas. But it's not necessarily that good at creating policy and governing. Um, if, if the rest of the party or... Um, if ideas have been stultifying under his under his reign, um, so I think those are, so those are some of the key points. On a on another note, I think we do have to give some credibility to the to the reports of assassination. You know, it doesn't mean there are dozens and dozens of them, but there probably have been a few attempts. We've seen changes in the Central Guards Bureau. We've seen shuffles of personnel. We've seen visible changes in his security detail. Those all to me suggest that that we should give some credence to the assassination attempts. And what I think is what I think is particularly important about those is that there may not be opposition in the sense of a faction coming to oppose him across a, a policy area, but that there are people who have become desperate enough inside the system that they're prepared to kill Xi Jinping and let the chips fall where they may. So people at the top, people who are at the center, and the places where his power is effective may simply go along to get along. Um, but that doesn't mean he has control over the whole party or over the whole system. And at something like 87 million members, that's a lot of people to keep track of and keep moving in one direction. If we look out at least over the second five-year term 
um, as general secretary. Uh, do you think that Xi Jinping has any positive agenda, any sense of a legacy as to what he wants to achieve? I mean, there's a lot of debates, of course, about whether he will really implement economic reform uh, based on the third plenum agenda. Uh, some people in China talk about making progress toward reunification with Taiwan. Um, do you see any real agenda that Xi Jinping might want to push in, his, uh, in, in the next five years? If there's no obvious successor, and Xi Jinping has aggressively targeted those who might have stood in his way, then I think his legacy is is essentially staying on top. I mean, we're in Woody Allen territory here. You know, the, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by through not dying. Um, I think that's the kind of the kind of legacy that it is. At the end of this five years, a critical component of it would be to stay on, and beyond that, the the specifics are are largely irrelevant. Um, he has to overcome he has to overcome the sort of the the party norms of of the party secretary staying staying around for two terms, about ten years, maybe exercising some influence from behind the scenes. But if he really wants to be on top, then he's going to have to continue to exert himself, and it's going to be a continuous struggle over the next five years. Um, things like Things like making a little bit of progress on, on reunification uh, with with Taiwan, I think, are sort of, or even progress on reform, they're all things that sort of fall within the party the party policy direction, as outlined in the work report. These are sort of normal things in which he should probably have to demonstrate progress, or at least be pushing the party along, but I don't think they're they're really specific as a legacy. The problem with something like Taiwan is that it's become clearer and clearer that most Taiwanese don't really want to have anything to do with the mainland. The number of people who want unification under any conditions while the CCP is in charge in Beijing in Taiwan is incredibly small and growing smaller by the day. So in a sense, if anything, if there's any progress to be made on on unification with Taiwan, it would be some sort of effort by Xi Jinping to knock Taiwan's trajectory from its current course away from any sort of unification under any terms towards some kind of political accommodation. Um, I don't know necessarily know what that looks like, and I don't think we have a clear sense of what the CCP might try to do to get that kind of thing. But we've seen. Um, you know what what's been called an effort to create a fake civil society in Taiwan to stir up unrest to to stir up dissent um, and embarrass the the sitting president um, Tsai Ing-wen. We've been talking with Peter Mattis, who's a fellow in the China program at the Jamestown Foundation. Thanks so much for helping us to dissect the uh, the CCP's 19th Party Congress. Well, thank you very much for having me, Bonnie. I hope it's some small measure of insight.